I've just got a couple of announcements uh, to share. Right after the service today, there is a newcomer's lunch. So hopefully if you are a part of that, you've uh, already been contacted and notified. But uh, just want to remind you again that right after the service, those of you that are participating in the kind of the newcomers get to know us lunch, uh, you'll do so right out there. There's also another lunch happening. If you're going to that, you already know about it, but the safety team is having a, a little uh, training session, and that will be upstairs in the, in the youth room. So with that, I'm going to call Bob up, and uh, Bob has an announcement for us about our special offering. Yeah, as we've been uh, talking the last few weeks about the need for replacing our lighting, today is the day of the offering that we're taking um, inside your bulletin, there's a little pledge form. So as the offering comes during the next song, that will be for the lighting project. So um, there's a couple different things you could do. You could put money in there towards that project, and or if you want to put in a pledge form of an amount that you uh, would like to contribute to that project before December 31st, you can do that. If you still need to Pray and think about it a little bit more or talk to somebody else a little bit more. There is also a box for those pledges out at the welcome table. Um, if you're a, a visitor today or have been visiting, inside the bulletin there's a tear-off form. If you would like to hear from somebody at Creekside to either get more information or if you have a prayer request today, please take a look at that. And then later, toward the end of our service, we will pass around our regular offering you're a, a visitor or have been visiting, we would encourage you to fill this out and drop that into the offering bag instead. I want to put in a word for the Get to Know Us lunch. If you're here and maybe, you know, through some act of oversight, not intentional, uh, you didn't get an invitation or you're new to the congregation and you're not sure uh, if you should come, I want to invite you. We have plenty of food and uh, just uh, right after the service, uh, about noon, we'll get started. And some of you say, well, I've been going to Creekside for a long time. Well, maybe you have, but maybe you don't know uh, what some of our doctrinal convictions are, what some of our practices are, what our vision for the future is, and that would be a good thing for you to attend that too. So I just really want to encourage you. Uh, you know, I know it's like, yeah, well, they didn't, I didn't get an invitation, I don't know. Hey, just, it's okay. We, we'd love to have you come. Uh, I think we're serving up some Northern Lights pizza, so maybe that will be an enticement for you. So I, that's all right. Uh, and we'll have a whole bunch of people there. Let me pray. Father... You have never failed us, uh, ultimately. Uh, I know that many of us have experienced failure. Many of us have experienced struggles and challenges in our lives, but you're a good and gracious God who uh, will continue to provide and, and minister to us. I pray that as we embark on a new series of study that you would guide our thoughts and minds and particularly let the Word of God speak to our hearts the truth of God so that we might live for you and bring glory to your name. Let us hear your word as you have for us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I read somewhere in an official brochure for Ragbri that 
for those who are going to go for the whole week that you're, you're, you're supposed to ride a thousand miles. You're supposed to log a thousand miles on your bicycle before you embark on the week-long trek. Because training is preparation for participation, but that's not just true for physical activities, it's true for spiritual activities. In the past several weeks, we've been discussing several summer workouts for spiritual training, how we can get our spiritual lives in better shape. And as we've done that, now we're going to move on to another thing, not we're going to take our practice and put it into participation, if you will. We're going to try to challenge us to take what we've learned about how we can grow in our love for God and translate that or transfer that or incarnate it into a genuine love for others, and particularly others in our communities, not just others within the body of Christ. We've talked at length over the past couple years since I've been here about loving each other, and we're not going to stop doing that, but we need to be thinking about how we can love others as well. And so to that end, we're going to be moving into this new series of loving our community. And I was thinking it's very, very important for us to talk about and to think about loving our community because increasingly in a postmodern culture, in a postmodern culture, actually a post-truth culture, if you will, in which everyone decides, just like back in Joshua's day, everyone decides what's right in their own eyes. And everybody decides their own truth. Like, it's my truth, and my truth is my truth, and if you don't like my truth, that's your problem, but it's my truth. Well, there is truth, not subjective truth, but objective truth, at least we believe in the Word of God. And so from the Word of God, we're going to look at what God's Word has to say to us about the the relevance of the church and of Christianity. People are increasingly determining that the church and Christianity is not relevant, and part of their distrust and part of their disdain for the church and for Christianity and for Christians is legitimate. Because, quite frankly, our profession hasn't always and doesn't always match up with our practice. What we say is oftentimes disconnected from what we do, and so they begin to look at it. And I think Robert Lewis, in his book, uh, The Church of Irresistible Influence, is correct when he says this, without practically attractive, spiritually compelling, proof-positive lifestyles, what good are our claims and pronouncements about a life-changing God? God doesn't change me, then why would somebody else be interested in hearing about a God who changes people's lives? Joe Aldridge, in an old book, said something that's still true today. People don't care how much we know until they really know how much we care. And it's really true. You see, our mission statement says that we're about... We're committed to leading people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. And I would submit to you this morning that if we're going to lead people to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ, we need to first of all show them the love of Christ and then share with them the love of Christ. We need to show it and then we need to share it. And so to that end, we're going to be examining three practices that we're going to help us, I hope, 
present the gospel to the lost world around us. We're going to talk in the next few weeks about doing good works and then building goodwill so that we can share good news. We're going to do good works in order to build goodwill so that we can share the good news of Christ. And this morning we're going to look at the first part of that, which is to do good works. And I believe that as we look at the scriptures, I've been looking, there's at least two, two commands, or two reasons, I guess, not just commands, but two reasons for doing good works. Now, there, you can probably think of more, okay, these are the two that I'm presenting to you this morning, okay? Two reasons for doing good works that help us build goodwill so that we can share good news. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn them, first of all, to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to consider two passages, and this is the first one, with regard to the first reason, which is we're created to do good works. We don't often talk about that, we don't often think about that, but God created us in Christ Jesus for good works. So this is Ephesians chapter 2, and it's a section, if you look at the book of Ephesians, there's first three chapters, and then there are the last three chapters, and it divides pretty evenly. The first three chapters are telling us about who we are. The last three chapters tell us, okay, so now here's what you should do in light of who you are. So we're kind of stuck in this, what is our identity passage uh, section in the first three chapters. So chapter 2, verse 8, says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith being the gift of God's grace to us that we would believe the work that he did through his son Jesus on the cross in dying in our place. Faith is our response to the salvation which God provided through his son. I know some of you, like myself, received free tickets to the Iowa State Fair. Some of you got them from your employer, you got them from somebody else, and that was a gift. It was provided. Was it free? No, it cost something. But it was free to me, and all I did was receive it. What Christ did on the cross was the price paid to purchase our salvation from sin, the condemnation we deserve because of our sin, was paid for on the cross, and we simply received it by grace through faith. God's grace gave us faith, and we believed. Okay? We accept that God is the creator when we trust Christ. We accept that we are people who are rebelling against God's perfect will. We don't always do or think or say what God wants us to, and that's sin, and that deserves his wrath. But God, in his infinite mercy, gave us Christ, who died on the cross and paid the price so that all who believe would be delivered from their sin and have eternal life. That begins the moment they believe, not at the end of our life, but the moment we believe, 
And that's what we accept. And so that we're, we're, we're forgiven. And the text says that for all of those, we are his workmanship. Who is we? Every believer. We are his workmanship. Refers to those who are trusting in Christ. See, the difference between believers and the world is, in the world, we try to seek our identity through the approval of other people. In Christianity, we already have our identity through the person and work of Jesus. We are his workmanship. His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus means that God is the worker. He made us in Christ. He made us to believe and to be his children. We did a study in our small group this last spring, and we were looking at this passage, and the word workmanship is an interesting Greek word. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word poem. We are God's poem in Christ Jesus. We are God's masterpiece in Christ Jesus. We are his work of art. In every new creature in Christ is a piece of work. And some of you are saying, yeah, I know. Some are really a piece of work. Well, we are, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And interestingly enough, God created, he, he, he made a poem in creation. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Poema, the, the creation. And he makes a poem every time a person comes to faith in Christ. They're a new creature in Christ. They're his workmanship, a masterpiece. As Peter Briscoe says, that the greatest artist in the world, our Heavenly Father, considers every child of God a masterpiece. Brought a little show and tell here. Didn't know. This is a, a masterpiece. Okay. It's a oak walnut and uh, I'm not sure what the darkest redwood is I should I could ask because the, the one who made it is here this morning it's a masterpiece and each one of us who is in Christ is a masterpiece and we're created for a purpose every Saturday morning or most Saturday mornings in Ames on Main Street, they have a farmer's market. And at the farmer's market, there are some people sitting along the street with their typewriters, and all you have to do is walk up to them and say, would you, um, I would like a poem on nature. You give them a topic, and they make a poem. God made you a poem. You are a poem if you're in Christ Jesus. You are a masterpiece. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by our good works. We're saved by God's good works so that we can do good works. We're not saved by our good works. We're saved by God's good work so that we can do good works. We are not just beautiful in Christ Jesus. We are useful in Christ Jesus. We are to be used for his purposes and for his glory. 
Anybody know what this is? Anybody ever used one? Anybody under the age of 25 ever used one? Yeah, rarely. Yeah, it's a potato masher. It's not instant whipped potatoes. This is what you have if you have good potatoes. You have good potatoes if you have mashed potatoes. But it's designed specifically for that purpose. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that somebody may have used it for some other purpose. I tried to find something. You know, so many other things, you know, the ingenious people in our midst would think, well, yeah, I used that to turn a screw one time, you know, or something, you know. Yeah, maybe you did, or maybe you un unwired it and used the wire for something. But typically, I mean, it's for a purpose. For mashing potatoes. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In the Hallmark series, Wind Calls the Heart, young Elizabeth Thatcher leaves her rich family and she says that she was sent out and her dad told her, find that for which, I hope you find that for which God shaped you and you follow it with all your heart. God tells us that he has shaped us to do good work, so let's wholeheartedly do it with our heart. This idea of being created in Christ Jesus to do good works is also picked up for us, not just in Ephesians, but over in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, where that great passage in chapter 2 that begins in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he comes to the end. Who is this Jesus Christ? Who gave himself, it says, for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people, what? For his own possession and then zealous for good works. So do you see the contrast? We're saved from our lawless deeds. We're saved from wickedness so that we can do righteousness. That's the, the text. To release us from the penalty and power of sin, to purify us, to do good works. Now, good works are the natural manifestation of our spiritual transformation. Those who are in Christ Jesus are naturally going to do good works. And the fruit of faith in Christ is not only personal holiness, but it's practical helpfulness. It is the personal holiness in me that translates into practical helpfulness to other people. I mean, it's, it's like good works are honesty and patience, and moral purity, and fairness, and forgiveness, and kindness, and gentleness, and generosity, and giving to help the needy, and the poor, and the widows. These are good works, and we're supposed to be zealous for these things. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, says that the blood of Christ cleanses our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. You see, again, the dead works to serve the living God. 
next week, I guess, I, I just found this out, that uh, um, game day is the game day show is coming to Ames. Some of you don't know exactly anything what I'm talking about, but the, the big college football thing, they're having a big college football game day in Ames. Never been there before, never had it there before, but the Iowa, Iowa State game is going to be played, and so they're going to come do this big hoopla thing. I'm telling you what, folks, you go to a college football game, a Division I college football game, and people are zealous for their team. I mean, they show up hours before the game. They got their big SUVs, they pull out the big grills, they get the, the little bag toss uh, games going, they got the big flat screen TVs set up. They don't even have to go into the stadium because they can watch the game. And they're watching that game and another game, and they're eating all kinds of food and drinking all kinds of drink, and they are zealous. They're all donned in their team apparel. It's crazy. It's actually, actually, it's a cultural experience. Just, even if you don't go to the game, you should just go around and walk around uh, the stadium and just see what's happening. I mean, there's one guy that comes, he drives all the way from northeast Iowa, and he brings two or three big uh, cookers, and he's cooking pulled pork, and he's roasting the pork out there, and his, he's got a whole tent set up, and people who know him and who hobnob with him, they come in, and they eat pulled pork sandwiches and pulled turkey sandwiches and baked beans and chips and everything. You go in at halftime, you come back out and eat some more. Intense, zealous. And I think, would we be nearly as zealous for the work of God? Nearly as zealous for good works. Are we intense in doing good works that build up the body of Christ and build bridges to the lost around us? Created for something bigger than ourselves. I want you to look at this little video clip that talks about a purpose and what we're created for that's bigger than ourselves. I've decided I'm going back to China. The missionary service have accepted me. Oh, <laughs> oh so please. But I've got a lot of running to do first. Jenny. Jenny, you've got to understand. I believe that God made me for a purpose. For China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. You can watch the movie some other time if you want to, Chariots of Fire. Again, I'm not here for making movie endorsements, but this is Eric Little, based on a true story, and he says to his, his girlfriend, he says, God made me for a purpose, for China, to be there as a missionary, but he says, God also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God made you and I for a purpose. He made us for doing good works. And when we do good works, we reflect God's character and we feel his pleasure and we show his glory to a lost and dying world. God made us and created us for good works that we should walk in them. 
The second reason we are to do good works is not just that we're created to do good works, but we're commanded to do good works. And there are three passages I want to look at with you this morning with regard to commanding us to do good works. And the first one is from the words of Jesus, from the lips of Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 39, you know the context, most of you, and you know the words. It's the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you looked at Acts chapter 10, verse 38, which we have on the screen, you know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit, with power, and how he went about, now look at this, he went about what? Doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, as for God was with him. Jesus didn't just say it, he did it. He practiced what he preached. He lived out what he had called them to. He incarnated this before him. Loving our neighbor is a call to incarnate who we really are as God's children. I was kind of amazed this last week, you know, big Hurricane Dorian and uh, smashed the Bahamas. It was headed for South Carolina and North Carolina. There was a little boy, six-year-old. I don't know if you saw this in the news, this little six-year-old boy. He had saved up $50 that he was going to use to go to Disney World. And he took the money and he went and he bought a bunch of hot dogs and some buns and some water. And he put up a sign for people who were fleeing the coastline and moving inland to give them free food because he thought it would help them. And I thought, how much more should we, as believers in Christ, be willing to think about others and do good works? We should naturally love because we have been loved. And no greater love than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And what Jesus commanded us, Paul kind of picks up on and echoes and maybe even expands in Galatians chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Galatians chapter 6, or you can just look at the screen or your phone or whatever. But he says, and let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not grow weary. And so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Don't. I don't know about you, I get, I get tired sometimes. It's like you, get, you do good things, and you keep doing good things, and you get tired of doing good things. And I keep doing good, good things, and nothing good seems to happen. He says, don't give up. We'll reap. And what will we reap? The context is we'll reap eternal life. But here, the eternal life does not mean our salvation as such. It is the consequence of our salvation. We will reap the fruit of blessings now and ultimately eternal reward. So you keep pressing on and pressing on and pressing on because you know that God has something in store for us. Verse 10, while we have opportunity. Who's the we? Who's Paul talking to? While we have opportunity. He's talking to believers. While we have opportunity. When do we have opportunity? With whom do we have opportunity? While we, while we believers have opportunity living this life. Every day we have opportunity. We have opportunity with our neighbors, with our family members, with our friends, with our coworkers, with our classmates. We have opportunity to do good. While we have opportunity, let us do good to the people God places in our path. Our daughters were traveling 
together on their way back from the East Coast a few years ago, and they were driving through New York, and so they decided that they would stop and see Niagara Falls because they had the opportunity. They took the opportunity that was presented before them because it was close. It was interesting because uh, yesterday was a day that didn't exactly go like I had planned. You know, I don't know if you wake up in the morning and you, you kind of have these ideas about how you think things are going to go. And then God has a different plan. I have a, a brother in Christ and he said, and wisely so, and I wish I did this more often, more frequently. He said, in the morning he just says, okay, Lord, here's my day. Do with it as you will. Well, yesterday I didn't say that, but God did it anyway. Okay? God did with it what he wanted. And you know what? I got to the end of the day and, and I said to something to Marla, I said, oh man. She goes, oh, you're disappointed, aren't you? Because you didn't get all the things done you wanted to get done. I says, no, it's really a good day. It's a good day. It's just different than I had. Because God gives us these opportunities. And so we, we, we take these opportunities. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men. So let us pray, Lord, help us to see and to seize the opportunities that you present for us to do good, if you would, by your grace. Now, interestingly enough, the word good here, it, I, I mentioned it before, what good kind of is, but here it is. Notice if you read closely the text, it says, the good. In Galatians 6, 9, it says, the good. Not just good in some outward external generic sense, but the good that is produced by the work of the Spirit within us. This is the manifestation, the fruit of the Spirit working in and through us. It's moral and spiritual excellence produced within. And this internal goodness spills over into external activity to all men, he says, first of all. While you have opportunity, let us do good to all men. I like what John MacArthur said, one of the best ways to thwart criticism of Christianity is for Christians to do good to unbelievers. Proof is in the pudding. And then he says we're to exercise good especially to believers, and that makes sense because of our connection in Christ. We should give deference and preference to those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is exactly what you see in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, they were taking up a collection. The believers in Macedonia and Achaia were taking up a collection. For whom? The believers in Jerusalem. Now, do you think only the believers in Jerusalem were suffering and struggling because of drought and difficulty and because of hard times? No. But they took up an offering for the believers because they were their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we, we give preference to those who are our believers. I remember a few years ago, we had just gotten back from a trip overseas on a, on a Saturday night, and I was preaching the next day, and there was a tornado on Saturday night. It was April 11th, 2011, or April 9th, 2011, something like that. And we actually drove through the tornado. We didn't know this. It was dark. You know, you can't really see them in the dark. So we kind of drove like a split between the, when there were the, 
We went here and the tornado went behind us. There was devastation. It was, it was amazing. And so after church, there was a group of people from our body because some of the brothers and sisters in our church body had been impacted by the tornado. We were out on Sunday afternoon going through their fields and in their farms picking up. I mean, I found two-by-fours, uh, you know, 100 yards out away from the place just driven into the ground by the, by the tornado. And we were picking it up. Because we were doing good for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we've been called to do. The last passage I want you to look at with me is found in Jeremiah chapter 29. Because I picked this passage because it, it sort of summarizes the essence of how God's people are to live in a contrary world as ambassadors of good. Okay, And the context here... I'm just going to read the passage in verse 29. I'm going to begin with verse 4 through verse 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce and take wives and become fathers of sons and daughters and and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters that multiply there and do not decrease and seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will have welfare for thus says the Lord of hosts the God of Israel do not let your prophets who are in your midst or diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream for they prophesy falsely to you in my name I have not sent them declares the Lord for thus says the Lord when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not calamity, for a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you in all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place where, from where I have sent you into exile. There they are in exile. The prophet Jeremiah, commanded by God in Jerusalem, writing to the exiled people of God in Babylon, telling them, hey, here's what I want you to do. And he gives them a couple of instructions that are applicable, I think, for all of us. Because, if you will, we are living in Babylon. We're living in exile. We're living away from our home in glory. We're living among pagan people who are naturally hostile. So how should we live among them as ambassadors for good? Well, two challenges. First of all, he gives us the first challenge to manifest a commitment to minister to people in chapter 29 verses 4 through 7. God has them where they are. It says in verse 4, I have sent you there. Nobody is here by accident. God has a plan. And how should we live out that plan? There are a couple of activities that this ministry involves. First of all, just engage in everyday activity. How should we live among the people who don't know Jesus? Well, just live. <laughs> you know, build a house, live in the house, go to work. Uh, I'm translating. Plant your garden. I'm, I'm sure some of, some of you have a garden, but most of you don't. You know, most of your, your garden is uh, Fairway, Hy-Vee, or Aldi's. Uh, that's your garden, okay? Get a job, live in the land. And, and be people who, who do normal, everyday 
activities. Buy groceries, get married. You see, God's people are not supposed to insulate and isolate. We're supposed to infiltrate and impact. And the text also says populate, which is a little aside there. You know, it's like, he didn't want them running off and then just stopping to have children. Oh, you know what, I, I, I think about it because I'm a new grandpa and I think, you know, what are, what are the world my grandkids are going to grow up in? Enough of that garbage. God is in control. He says, don't hold back. Just do your thing and have kids and marry and get married and, and do this. You know what interesting thing about the, the younger generation is? And you hear this. They're talking about, oh, you know, we don't need to have any more children. I'm thinking, well, how does that bode for the population? Now, I say this with all sensitivity because I know personally, from personal experience, it's not always that easy for people to have children. And some people never get married, and some people get married and they can't have children. I, I understand that, so I'm not trying to be insensitive to that. What I'm saying is, if you can have them, then do. <laughs> you know, uh, That's what God says. It said in Genesis, it's repeat here. The idea is, don't hold back, Christians. How do we have impact without contact? And we have more contact, the more people we have. Make sense? Well, it makes sense to me. So this is what he said. And then, not only do we engage in everyday activity, but we engage in ministry. I love what he says in verse 7, and seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. This group of people had been transported from their homeland in Jerusalem to a foreign country with a foreign language, with foreign culture, with foreign gods. And he says, don't create your own society here. Seek the welfare of the city. Seek for their provision. Seek for their peace. Seek for their pleasure. Seek for their protection. And I wonder, are we at Creekside... And the people, you, you, we all live in, in communities. Are we seeking the welfare of our communities? Do we seek the protection? Do we seek the provision? Do we seek the pleasure, the peace of the people around us? Or do we just want to insulate and isolate? I can't wait to build the biggest fence around my house that I can build so I don't have to talk to my neighbors. Seriously? No. Now, don't get offended if you have a fence around your house, okay? Don't, please don't do that. I remember a church that I know, they decided in the summertime, once a month, they were going to have what they called summer of service. So every month they had a project. One month they, they helped put a roof on a, some totally random person not associated with the church just helped put a roof on a portion of this lady's house they tore off the old roof put down the tar paper put on the roof you know it was a Saturday and actually part of a, a Friday night a Saturday and part of a Sunday job for the the guys in this in this church and then one Sunday or Saturday they went out and they hauled out there'd been a lot of rain and the basement had flooded and so they went out and they hauled junk out of wet sopping uh, you know stuff out of the basement of somebody's house summer of service they just tried to salt the earth with the, the, the love of Christ. And then the second thing given in the text is the ministry is to seek the welfare, but then to pray. 
which, you know, okay, duh, you know. <laughs> okay, we're Christians, what should we do, pray? Yeah, pray, pray for the welfare of the city and pray for the people. And I was thinking about uh, Francis of Assisi's prayer of, of peace when he says, Lord, make me an instrument of peace. That's what he said. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. We pray for our city. Pray for the people around us that they would come to know Christ. That we would salt the earth with the love of Christ. That we'd be zealous for good works. And then he says, because in seeking their welfare, you're going to be taken care of. So there is a reason to do it because we would have peace in our own life, that it would be good for us if we seek the welfare of the people. So the first verses 4 through 7 is that we're supposed to maintain this ministry idea, which is kind of a new thought when you live in a city with uh, people who are not necessarily thinking the way you are, that may be antagonistic towards you, that we're there to minister. And then secondly, it's to maintain confidence in the future, and we do so in light of what's coming. Now, for them, it was like they're returning to Israel. They had the promise, 70 years in Babylon, they're going back home. For us, no, we're not going back to Jerusalem, but we are headed for home, which is our eternal home. And with that in view, we, we cling to it. We have this perseverance and press on in light of the hardships because we know we're going home. I've told you my, uh, a little bit about my experience at Camp Matigua when I was a young boy at the scout camp. And so I went to Camp Matigua and I knew that there were only five days. So it was the five days that got me through uh, knowing that it was coming to an end that got me through the hardships, the pouring down rain and the mud and trekking through the brush with the, the British kamikaze scout who uh, walked us through the stinger nettles and everything because we thought we had to be, you know, macho, macho men. And we, uh, we got all ripped up and, you know, went on a 10-mile hike. We only had to go five. And I'm kind of like a minimalist, you know. It's like, oh, yeah, it says five miles, let's go five. But I knew the end was coming. So I got through. You know, do good works because you know the end is coming. Believers were to engage in good works because we see the welfare of the city and there's a glorious end in sight. Now you may be here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You never put your faith or your trust in Christ. And you say, you know, what you said at the beginning is the thing I'm camping on. And that is that Christians, if they were more consistent with what they said and what they did, then I might even consider Christianity. And I have two things that I would just like to challenge you with. The first one is this. Don't judge Christianity solely on the basis of imperfect people who try to live it out. Judge it based upon the only one who perfectly lived it out, Jesus. And did that dude do good that cannot be argued with? Absolutely, he did. Because he died on a cross so that you and I could be forgiven and have eternal life with God in heaven. So that's kind of both of them mixed in together, okay? So don't, don't, and then this, or that's the first one. The second one is this. Look, there are believers out there who are absolute 
stellar models of mercy, love, compassion, and goodness. So look at some of them. Isn't it amazing that people who want to uh, condemn Christianity, you can always find some one of us that's a bozo at one point in time or another, and maybe more consistently than others, and you say, well, I'm not going there. I'm not going to, uh, Christians, they're a bunch of hypocrites, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, well, look at Jesus. And then look at the ones who are really more reflective of Jesus than me. You don't like the way I reflect Jesus? I know there are other people who are more Jesus-like than me. So look at those people and see if they don't reflect to you somebody that is reflective of a truth that you want to embrace. And I would ask you to consider Christ and good works. Not just, you know, I mean the younger generation are all into good works, but why? Just because it gives you some warm fuzzy? That's okay, but that's not an eternal purpose We do good works to build goodwill, to share good news because people are lost and they need Jesus. And we want them to see the only one who really did the good and greatest work. He died on the cross to pay the price that you and I deserve to pay. For those of us who know Christ, I'd say this, you know, my my cousin Mike had a a Brittany Spaniel that he trained. Uh, She was bred and trained to hunt. And she was a piece of work in a very beautiful way. She was... Poetry in motion when she was out. She was a bird dog, and we'd go out hunting, and only a few times that I ever see her in action, but boy, he had her trained really well. She would not run ahead and scare out the birds. She would come on as soon as she sniffed the bird. She was on point, and she was waiting for you to get your loaded and get your safety off and get ready to shoot, and she was a thing of art. And you know what? That Brittany Spaniel did exactly what she was bred for and created for and commanded to do, and All I'm saying is, by God's grace, that's what he wants from us, is to do what God created us for and what he commanded us to do, and that's good works, by God's grace, for his glory, and for the gain of his kingdom. And so as we we come to remember what God did, through the breaking of bread and the drinking of the cup, we realize that Here's the ultimate demonstration of God's goodness to us, which should be the motivation. It's not just suck it up and do good. It's that God did so much good for us. Now we can live, and that's who we are, is to to love and live. And his body was broken and his blood was shed, as remembered in these emblems, these representative symbols, so that we could have new life. And these symbols confront those of us who don't know Christ. Say, look, this is the ultimate good. It was demonstrated on the cross. Am I going to ignore it or accept it? And it invites those of us who know Christ to say, you know, this is who I am. I'm created in Christ Jesus for good works. The commander-in-chief has commanded me to go do good works. Why? Because of his love for me. And so if you're here this morning and you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to take a moment or two just to search your heart and to confess any sin and then to come and to take of the bread, either up here at the front or at the back, and to drink the cup as a remembrance and a kind of a reinforcement. Okay, God, yeah, I'm created in you to do good works, and I want to be submissive to do what you've commanded me and created me to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your patience with us and for calling us into your family to be your hands and feet and eyes and ears. And I just pray that you would work in our, our lives individually and as a church body that we might be more committed to living out what you've created us to do and what you've commanded us to do. 
that we would do good works and build goodwill and then we could share good news and see many people come to faith in Jesus. In whose name we pray.